All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. One of the things, again, that we were trying to inculcate in our trainees was the state of preparedness, that you will go in anticipating what will happen, but not knowing exactly which way it's going to go. I mean, I think planning is a good exercise for examined classes and for courses like the CELTA and the DELTA. I mean, but knowing when the plans has to be abandoned is equally important. Learners' errors are opportunities, they're not mistakes. And I think yeah. that, was, that's a, that completely flipped me, that, mm-hmm. under, that realization. It wasn't on that particular moment and that lesson, but that, was, that contributed to this idea that no, if there's no problems, if there's no errors, there's no learning. When that just happened, I was in a cinema in Barcelona watching a film, Scandinavian film, and they had this little flyer that they handed out and they said, this is a film about the dogma, 1995 film movement. And to, to make a dogma film, you had you had to obey these 10 vows. And I looked at this and I thought, well, this is this is this is fun. I could I could write a little article about this. <laughs> this 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 way of teaching is where the student is not the object of the verb to teach, but is the subject of the verb to learn. You know, so it's turning it around and giving the, the learner agency and making learning the job, not just teaching and recognizing the difference. So that's the sound bite that, you know, I'd like it needs to be tidied up a bit, but uh, that could be. Uh, we can do that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. To those of you who are new listening to this podcast for the first time, the main aim of our podcast is to really deconstruct language teaching to bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode is dedicated to our vision of education, continuous growth that is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your context. Andrew. We also have a membership, don't we? We absolutely do. Our Learn Your English Teacher Development Membership, where you can join a community of curious teachers and educators who want to achieve more without having to plan and teach more. Leo, you like to say, don't teach more, teach more mindfully, right? That's right. And that's what we try to do with our membership. We try to provide content, mentoring, courses, and more importantly, a community, a community of practice to help teachers plan less so they can actually have time to develop more. And what we focus on, Andrew, mindful and meaningful teaching, better thinking, continuous learning, developing a healthy mind, purposeful creativity, mental tools for thought, and humanistic education. Andrew, if somebody wants to become a member, what do they have to do? Oh, so simple. Just go to courses.learnyourenglish.net and become a member right there. You'll have access to all of our materials, not only for this month, but for all the months that you missed in the past. If you want more information, check out learnyourenglish.net slash memberships. What are you waiting for? That's my question. 
Hi everyone, my name is Marek Kiczkowiak and I'm from Poland. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Cześć, nazywam się Marek Kiczkowiak i jestem z Polski. Słuchacie właśnie Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. I am very excited today because I will be joined, actually we will be joined, Andrew and Mike, by an ELT legend and we will talk about his routines, his career, methods for thinking, writing, and much more. Who is in the house today? We are very excited to invite Scott Thornbury to the studio, to our digital studio. Scott needs no introduction, but we'll do one anyway. (laughs) Scott has taught and trained in Egypt, the UK, Spain, and in his native New Zealand. Until recently, he taught an online MA TESOL program for the New School in New York. His writing credits include several award-winning books for teachers on language and methodology. He is also the series editor for the Cambridge Handbooks for Language Teachers and a trustee of the Hands Up Project, which promotes drama activities in English for children in under-resourced regions of the Arab world. At the moment, he's working for the Mosaic Foundation, training teachers of refugees in the Middle East on how to integrate communicative activities into their online classes. His website is scottthornbury.com. He tweets at Thornbury Scott, and his highly acclaimed blog can be found at scottthornbury.wordpress.com. The Mosaic Foundation as well can be found, mosaic.ngo. All of those as well in the show notes. Well, let's dive right in, and we hope you enjoy the show. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time for this um, long-awaited interview. Um, I thought we would start right from the from the beginning, and perhaps we could talk a little bit about your early experiences teaching and writing. So you've worked mainly in the private EFL sector as a teacher, director of studies, teacher trainer. You've also lived in Egypt, had short stints in the UK and in your native land, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And you said in an article that it was in 1975, February, to be more specific, and you had just arrived in London and you were visiting a friend who let you watch his class and you thought, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> what made you come to that realization? It seemed intuitive. Uh, it seemed uh, like, yeah, uh, this is how I would have liked to have been taught uh, modern languages. And I was taught modern languages uh, at school and in both grammar translation, but we did have one inspired teacher of German who who did for the first six weeks, I think of the course, we did nothing but interact with him and, uh, you know, respond to the pictures in the book. We didn't do any reading or writing and there was no explicit grammar. And that actually, that was, that opened my, you know, eyes to what the potential of language learning through doing in a sense and so when I saw my friend painfully working his way through uh how to tell the time with a kind of you know fake cardboard clock thing with a one-to-one student uh, and I thought yeah this this is not rocket science I could do this and I could live in Europe and you know and and the rest would be history (laughs) as it was (laughs) (laughs) You also said, and I quote, that you were instantly captivated 
um, by the IH method, which is a derivative derivative of the direct method where yeah. the grammar points were presented using situations, vocabulary was taught through mime, reality, visuals. I still think that this is how languages are still being taught. Why yeah. do you think this is still the case? Well, I mean, first of all, let's go back a bit. Again, this was a reaction to the grammar translation, how it had been taught French and Latin and uh at school, so this it was refreshing to see that uh, my these intuitions were realized in a, in a methodology which was, uh, and for me who had come from a sort of theatrical background, because I don't think it's in my CV, but I spent two years in children's theater between right. finishing school and going to university. And um, so the theatricality of it was, was easy to accommodate so there, you know it was it seemed like fun um and uh it was fun and it was relatively easy to pick up uh and of course it had this supreme advantage you didn't have to speak the, the learners l1 which of course in london at the time where i was being trained would have been an insuperable barrier um and so all these techniques and activities uh, stood me in good stead for the first four or five years of teaching when I did go to eat. Well, I went to southern, south, uh, southern England for a bit and then to, to Egypt. And it was I was able to refine those basic techniques uh, to make them work for me and keep everybody engaged and satisfied. And I think um, there was that was that there was that fun and element, the intensity of kind of uh, high pressure drilling and correction, etc. And the very, very, very narrow curriculum. I mean, this totally structural based, pattern based curriculum that we were driving them through. And if you think about it, this was the last, this was the sort of swan song, if you like, of audio lingualism. I mean, I came in just at the end, we were trained how to use language laboratory. It was part of the four week course, as, as it was called then. Oh, wow. um, language laboratories did still exist. But they, you know, their shelf life was rapidly running to an end. And I, and I think it was interesting coming in at, at ELT at that stage, because, of course, just around the corner was this major sea change, which was we now know it's the communicative approach, but I guess you're going to ask me about that. We're going to get there. We're, 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 it's a it's a kind of a trip down memory lane here. <laughs> a timeline of sorts, yeah. yeah but it is interesting. It is interesting to hear you talk about that because I started off at Berlitz actually, and and I thought it was it was great having the method there. And I think that for new teachers, just having something to latch onto is is crucial because it's through well, that, as you suggested, it's it's having that system and working up from there uh, is really, really what, what, what you need, right? And, and I think, actually, I was thinking about it just the other day, how, well, how it imprinted on me a kind of model of uh, teacher training that mm. is, is totally uh activity based and experiential and deep end and um and practical before it becomes theoretical and i want to come back to that later on because this is exactly what i'm doing now on some online teaching uh teacher training uh so it's interesting and that's why i was thinking about it but i've never really moved mm. away from that model and i say imprinting intentionally because i mean i often think that you know you know how geese 
uh, if they if their first moving thing they encounter is a wheelbarrow, they'll think it's its mother and they'll follow it around for days on end. Well, that was the, like the four-week course for me. It was sort of like it was imprinted <laughs> upon me. I mean, I thought this is – and I thought this is the only way to teach. How could anybody have thought there was any other possible way? And I used <laughs> yes. to be quite – uh, fundamentalist about this and people would say oh well that's the IH method you know people would say critically later oh that was the IH method or there are other ways of teaching I said no oh no this is the only way <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> I was completely and utterly <laughs> hooked um, it took me ages before I snapped out of it and realized no don't be silly there there's as many other ways of teaching languages mm. as there are students and teachers but it was it was it did do its job and I've always been a defender people who do knock short, sharp courses like the CELTA course. That, the CELTA course fulfills a very important function. It gets people up and running. Uh, it is very practical. And that's how we do learn skills. We learn them by doing them. And from day one, you're in the, you're in the practicum. You know, you mm -hmm. teach you. They thrust you in, mm -hmm. kicking and screaming into a class the same <laughs> afternoon as you were, you know, you had your foreign language lesson. That was the other thing that imprinted. We had a teacher trainer gave us a lesson in Thai. And I was so convinced I, that, you know, I, if all I needed was another six weeks of this, I'd be a fluent Thai speaker. I suspect now in retrospect that his Thai wasn't that good, but we were all completely <laughs> hoodwinked. And so, so you have this experience in the morning and in the afternoon you're in a class of this mixed nationality group of students who are staring at you expectantly and you, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. You start doing things and it's amazing and they love it. And you think this is... <laughs> there's no better way of spending the rest of my existence on this planet. Right. Well so the fact that you were, again, this is the nature of all these four week courses. And again, we're not, I think the problem with, with the CELTA is not the four week course. It's the fact that a lot of teachers, as you said, uh, rightfully so, they think that that's the only way to do mm -hmm. things. But you, you've talked about your experience teaching after the course and how you cringe when you think about those lessons. And I'm going to quote uh, a lesson that you described in one of your articles that you were presenting countable and uncountable nouns using a, a assembled bag of groceries, drilling the present simple instead of the present continuous to narrate a picture story. And it also includes your first failure as a teacher, where you basically fail to explain the grammar of I wish mm -hmm. to a group of uh, Iranian yeah, the cat is. So I'd love to know more about that experience. <laughs> this is a classic thing of trying, trying, trying on the teacher. This was like so. They said, "Mr. Scott, could tell us about our I wish." I said, oh, "I wish, you know, I wish I had a lot of money. I wish I had a car. I wish I." And they said, "Why is it had?" And I it was completely flummoxed. That never occurred to me. And never, and I, you know, and they kind of smirked. They did it deliberately. They did it to all the rookie teachers, and expect me to collapse and you know, hand <laughs> my notice. And I did. I went down to the staff room and I said, "Why is it I wish I had?" And then somebody patiently explained it to me. But this is what you don't know, of course, and what you have, and you spend a lifetime learning about the not just the grammar, of course, but the phonology and the and the text linguistics etc of English and you never stop learning and that's one of the things actually that makes it a really interesting job. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very interested in in the seeds of dogma which according to you were they were planted during the first time you were observed so you were teaching a group of real beginners and in what you, you describe where did you get all this I can't oh, remember I, writing I've, this I've done, uh, I've done a lot of research yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of research the internet hides nothing <laughs> <as they say. laughs> these, are, these are stories I've only told my therapist <laughs> 
So you were basically teaching... Maybe we should talk to that person. (laughs) They're online. This is almost like a therapy session. That'll be episode B, yeah? Yeah. I don't have a therapy. Go on. So you were teaching a group of real beginners in Mm -hmm. what you describe as what used to be a a broom cupboard. Mm -hmm. And you didn't know you were going to be observed and you had nothing prepared for that lesson. But you, according to what you said here, and I quote, you managed to get the students to ask you questions and then each other and then him him in this case being the the director of ih john uh, haycraft haycraft, exactly. haycraft. Mm-hmm. so that was according to you your first dogme lesson so mm-hmm. i'd love we'd love to you to hear you elaborate on that what did that lesson look like what did it teach you about language learning and language teaching mm-hmm. well i mean uh i was winging it in a sense because i knew that i could and i think it was one of, it was a real beginner's class and i did I did already at that stage know how you you can get a sort of you can scaffold a conversation with real beginners by just asking them questions, which they can ask in one cent you know one word, and so we managed uh, yeah we I managed that lesson I really didn't think I was going to be it was like a royal visit you know it was like the king swept in with <laughs> with his entourage and there I was in this brute thinking I was hidden, uh, but I it was it it, it was. Both there, this was in Hastings, but very shortly after when I went to Egypt again and taking those same techniques with me and refining them. And uh, those lessons which evolved out of the kind of beginning of the lesson chat, partly, uh, but also experiments that I that I was doing. I thought, you know, um, because we were... We were working, as I said before, in this very, very tight curriculum, which is very, very structural. And the course books were were the legacy of the audio uh, lingual approach, books like First Things First by Louis Alexander. they were very, this, the learners were very constrained. You could, you could see that they were kind of frustrated because they couldn't, they were, you know, we, we took, it took a year to get through the present tenses, you know, the verb to be, present negative, you know, short answers, questions, and then, if, and then the present continuous, and all you know, the permutations of that, and then the present simple, all the permutations of that, before they were allowed yes. to get onto the past simple. So I mean, literally, these poor students, and they were, they were highly motivated to learning this. This was the uh, economic opening up of Egypt in the mid 1970s, and people were fixated on, you know, shaking off the. You know, the Russian coil that had, uh, and the whole educational system that they'd inherited, and they were dying to learn English. And so they were really frustrated and they couldn't even talk about their weekend after a year. So <laughs> I would give them a little bit of rope and see what would happen. Because, Interesting. And, and so, uh, so I would experiment. So, like, I, I went in one lesson and I decided I wouldn't speak at all and I pretended that I lost my voice. Uh, and it was, you know, and I, but I orchestrated, <laughs> I, I orchestrated a conversation or dialogue or whatever and stuff and that, and for an hour. And, uh, and then I, we had a break and I went back and then I started speaking there, you know, and, and uh, but I mean, it was just to see, well, what, what, first of all, what could you do without the teacher talking all the time? So that was a kind of instinctive feeling that I was doing too much and maybe you could just orchestrate this. And this is before I read anything about the silent way. Hmm. And then there was the, the famous Time magazine lesson, which I've I've talked about endlessly. But that was when the scales really did fall for my eyes because I wrote, it was a similar kind of thing where I put up a picture uh, to the cover of the of the current Time magazine and then sat down and waited. 
And this again was a, was probably what we would call a two class, or even and they and the and they gradually realizing realizing that I was not going to do anything, I was not going to help them, I was not going to encourage them, I was going to discourage them. They filled the space that I'd provided with language, uh, with English, and you, uh, you know, and but it was English of a kind, but it was interlanguage. It was, it was, mm. it was a one language. It was lexical, but it was language. And then I had the inspiration to kind of grab, it was a, or actually ask one of the, the, the students to copy it all onto the board while I went out and, and came back and the board was full of this stuff. And then I, what I didn't know then with the term was I kind of reformulated it for them commenting as I went along on bits and pieces that I felt that were in there and they copied it down. That was the lesson. It was just like amazing because it taught me, well, first of all, that, you know, minimal uh, stimulus can create maximal effects. Mm -hmm. It's the butterfly wing kind of sort of flapping thing. And then, but more importantly, it taught me that, um, you know, to trust the students and that between them, they have a lot more language uh, than any individual has. And, and, but not only that, if, uh, if you trust them and if you give them that space, that they will fill it. And uh, it was amazing. So that was probably my first purely dogma lesson. And I, I do quote it endlessly because it, it was a kind of watershed moment for me. I was going to say, because that actually links very well to the materials light part where, and I think uh, when I interviewed um, Luke Mettings, we were talking about this. When we reduce the amount of material, as you said, Scott, mm-hmm. um, you, you're freeing up, as you wisely said, this learning space for the kind of interactive talk-mediated learning um, opportunities that are so important, so crucial for, for, language, um, for language development. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, yeah. you see, because, I mean, then what happened, of course, was there was the advent of the communicative approach. I mean, all this was happening before I'd even heard of the communicative approach, <laughs> but it kind of burst upon us. Even in Egypt, we kind of, <laughs> it rippled. We're getting there. We're getting to each other. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and it made a lot of it made a lot of sense to me, even more sense, because I was frustrated with this. I mean, you know, although I was very good at this technique, this kind of late stage audio lingualism, uh, I recognized that it was only uh, a bridge so far, you know, it was mm-hmm. not going to get them much further than just parroting whatever it was the teacher wanted them to say. And so I needed a, a methodology which gave them more uh, ownership of the language, more agency and more fluency, finally. And then the communicative approach burst upon the scene. I thought, mm-hmm. this is it. This is exactly what I was waiting for. You know? uh, so basically you left the UK and then you moved to Egypt, more specifically um, Cairo. And there's mm-hmm. a fun fact, you mentioned this also, that IH did, had a, bad, a different name in, in Egypt because it was badly translated to like a brothel <laughs> or something. It sounded like the name of a brothel, yeah. So they changed it to the International <laughs> Language Institute. Right. International Language Institute, yeah. Uh, so, it was what it was. And, and it, it, the various, it was very, very successful because it was the, one of the first private language schools in Egypt and the one, right. one of the few that had dare I say it, native speaker teachers and also uh, trained teachers more to the mm. point. And that took education seriously. Right. So you were a senior teacher there and eventually you were asked to mentor new teachers. I'd love to hear more about those mentoring sessions. Um, what did they involve? What were some of the guidelines you provided to your mentees? Because I think this is going to connect to your MA dissertation as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I was very, very lucky. And in fact, uh, I remember my, my David Thompson, my four-week course tutor in Hastings, telling me when I was considering going to Egypt, and he said, well, go because uh, it's a new school and it's an expanding market. And he said, within a, a year, you'll be, you know, uh, director or assistant director of studies and men, you know, teacher training and everything. And that's exactly what happened. I was incredibly lucky. It was the right place at the right time. Uh, and we had a we had a lot, a big influx of new teachers coming in, uh, straight off four-week courses, most of them, uh, as well as a lot of emigre teachers from, from Lebanon because the civil war had just broken out. So we had a very, it just expanded very, very rapidly. And so uh, there was mentoring of the new teachers, which involved observing them. Uh, and feeding, giving feedback and the whole thing. Uh, and there's also running um, teachers meetings like with an educational focus where we would cover all, you know, all the kinds of issues that were relevant to the teachers, how to do a listing activity, how to, you know, uh, do X, Y, Z. And this was an opportunity for me to start also to push out some of these ideas that I, I was starting to think about. Uh, but the mentoring was was highly significant because that's when I started to realize that there are as many ways of teaching as there are individual teachers and that you and you and you <laughs> you you realize that not everybody's like you and you can't make everybody like you. And uh, and I came up against some real like block. I mean, some people, one guy who was an experienced, relatively experienced teacher, I remember watching his class and I said, he's doing everything wrong. And yet... <laughs> My, like what, for example? Like, what well, he was teaching things? a ton of vocabulary. I mean, it was like a big class, and it was—I don't know—it was language of um, textures and shapes and things like that. Oh, and he brought God. in a whole lot of things, and they were handing them around and passing these objects around, and and they were trying to say words, and he would t teach the words like tessellated or you know <laughs> variegated or correlated. Very relevant to their needs, yes. I guess. <laughs> and I was going, you can't do this, you can't do this. But they were like lapping it up. You could see there was, mm -hmm. there was no resistance. And I thought, well, some you know something's going on here, something's working. So that that was. Um, that was all very formative and also very formative, of course, is working in a large school. And I was also on standby a lot of the time just because I had extra hours. So when teachers didn't come in, I had to leap into the, and, and that was often, I mean, people got mm. sick a lot. <laughs> and, um, and I remember going into classes and, and, uh, and saying, well, I, I'm gonna, sorry, uh, Bobby's not here today. We're gonna have to, can and say, well, we were canceled last week. I was like, oh God, I better teach you then. So like that, I said, like, okay, what did you do last lesson? You know, where's it? No, okay, okay. Well, and I remember improvising lessons. I remember once actually teaching two classes simultaneously. It was two classes, the teachers, and I was going from one to the other. And so I said, okay, into pairs, into pairs, off you go. And then I whip across the corridor and blah, 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 with that. Okay, now you got lot into pairs. And then, and you, you learn how resourceful you can be with mm -hmm. nothing. With nothing, we had, we had, we, we made a lot of our own materials. And I was talking to somebody the other day who was in, uh, who was a teacher in that school then and said, yeah, I remember we just had all the materials that basically, I mean, we had course books, but the course mm -hmm. books weren't super appropriate for those learners. Uh, and so we did make a lot of materials. So yeah, I remember we used massive amount of materials and to this very day can remember the names of, of an all you know the script of particular dialogues that became institutionalized huh. in our school. So yeah, we were we were very creative as a staff. We were very keen to learn, and I was in this incredibly privileged position, which was a great launching pad into teacher education. 
mm-hmm. um, because I had all this experience of observing teachers and, and sort of, you know, helping them make sense of all this. Mm. What, because, I mean, everything makes sense, as you mentioned, the, the scarcity of, of culturally appropriate materials, um, learning how to fabricate lessons out of very little, as you mentioned. And as you said, when everything else failed, you simply got the students to talk. I would like to explore this a little further because I'm trying to really understand what your operating system was like at that time. Like, were there any other guiding rules or principles that stuck with you from that period that carried on? Because I think a lot of this, Scott, from what I'm understanding, from what we're understanding here is that this was the best period for you to hone your training skills. Mm -hmm. So are there any other guiding rules or principles in well, I, operating systems? Uh, well, there were, you know, I was also being observed by people who had, uh, who were good at giving. Uh, I remember once I was giving, I, I was observer, I thought it was a really, I can swear, it was a really <laughs> shit hot lesson. And, uh, <laughs> and thank you. And, and the director of studies said, yeah, it was good, but who was asking all the questions in that lesson? And I said, me, you know, I'm a teacher. And he said, well, maybe you could get the students to ask them. I'd never thought of that before. And so I did. And off it went kind of thing. So you see, I mean, I was getting good advice as well. But I must admit, I was not reading. I was not attending courses. I was not, there was nothing. I mean, you know, mm. with speaking, there was nothing. There were no local courses, no, as far as I can remember. I mean, uh, there were very few language schools. There was a university, but I mean, I don't remember anybody. There was no conferences or anything. Even if there had been, I don't think I would have had the uh, temerity to go to one because I was learning, you know, and I was learning so much anyway on the hoof. And it wasn't, uh, is this the point to introduce old Steve? Because it wasn't until five years into teaching. And I can't remember if this, this must've been before uh, I went back to London to do the de- Delta, the that's equivalent where, of the Delta. That's, that's where we are at now. Yeah, we're going there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So well, just back. before that, yeah. just before that, uh, I picked up a copy in a local English language bookshop of Earl Stevick's Away and Ways, right. published in 1980. I had read nothing about it. This was the first book I picked up and read about English language teaching or language teaching. And it just kind of blew my mind. I mean, it was, it was completely, I can't remember. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, this... what attracted you to this book? Like, what was the... Well, I mean, it was the only one. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing there. Uh, it was one of the few books. I guess maybe, maybe the title. May... I, didn't, I knew nothing about Earl Stevick at the time. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe something caught my eye, but it was certainly, it was very anecdotal. He talks mm. all about his experience teaching Swahili and he teaching this language and teaching that language and teaching using suggestive and, and experiencing all these techniques, etc. So it was, it was very easy to read, although sometimes he gets a little bit um, visionary, let's say, mm-hmm. but I mean, that was okay. That, that's what I needed. I needed an antidote to this drill and repeat kind of methodology, which I was already becoming tired of. And I need somebody to tell me, yes, it, actually, there's more to learners than um, this kind of uh, stimulus response kind of mentality that, right. that, that learners do come into classrooms with their own experiences, their own wishes, their own stars, their own this, that, and the other thing. And, oh. that, and not only that, they come up with their attitudes and their emotions, et cetera. So it gave me a much more rounded picture of what learners are. Uh, and, uh, and it suggested that there's more ways 
than one to skin a cat. You know, that all these different methods that <laughs> Steve was was mentioning. Thought, wow, that's amazing. I could, you know, and so I started experimenting. And I can't remember actually now whether this was pre or post the Delta, but I'm sure I read the book. I mean, you know, we had to read books during the Delta, but there, or the diploma. According to it. my research, it was around that time. You went back. Yeah, to it was YH around London. that time. Yeah, you did. Because I diploma. came back. Yeah, I did the diploma in, in London. That was very. Uh, that was great. I mean, that was that's what exactly what I needed. And uh, in what way could you could you tell us more about that? Like, what was the what was perhaps the biggest takeaway from the diploma? Because I think one of the things you mentioned, Scott, is the paradigm shift at the time, yeah. right? With moving away from drilling. In, in this exactly. accuracy-driven approach towards fluency and learner-centered, which, exactly. according to you, is more in line with your view of language education, which is organic, holistic. You also mentioned crashing because he was... He yeah, was that's the, right. Crashing was hip on the scheme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 on the scene, yes. I think, um, I, I think what the diploma did for me, it, it kind of, well, it validated a lot of the things I was thinking about, but it actually it gave me the theoretical base, both into language but also into uh, learning and acquisition that I set sorely lacked um, and it, it added and it also it kind of validated the communicative approach because remember that the certificate the, the four-week course I'd done had not mentioned the communicative approach because it didn't exist <laughs> but by 1985 when I did I guess it was 85 when I yeah, did the is, um, yeah. Delta then it was well ensconced and it, and it was and it was enshrined in various course book series like strategies etc so it was very much there but I mean I hadn't uh, engaged with the theory underpinning it so that was what was really really useful at the same time I was being trained up to be a a cell a, a, a tutor in my own right so I was having to kind of you know rethink how how would this how would this look at the pre-service kind of uh, level? But it wasn't until I got back to Egypt and, and ran a school in Alexandria that I really was able to really start experimenting with, with crash and type ideas of comprehensible input with some of these stevic kind of um, humanistic mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, approaches and with the communicative approach as it was, as it was, uh being as it was represented in those course books i mean i don't think those course books were a true representation of it uh and i don't think a course book could be a true representation of the communicative approach i mean that's that's the problem with it yes. uh really i mean if you take the you know the the core of the communicative approach um it's difficult to kind of fold into a linear course book structure as has you know, as is the problem with task-based learning as well, because it is also difficult to kind of, you know, it's knocking a square peg into a round hole kind of thing. Huh. Um, and I can talk about that more. But I, but I mean, I think yeah, coming, yeah, I did the Delta. I went to that. That was the best best possible thing to do. Came back, do more teacher training, more new teachers, um, and more experimenting. Yes, uh, more experimenting. Uh, yeah. What were you experimenting with at the time? I was experimenting with crash and crash and esque time things. So I started to do um, more. Uh, I'm just trying to remember when I first started experimenting with total physical response, whether it was there or wasn't until I got to Spain. But I mean, I I was aware of these methodologies. I saw that famous Horizon. 
uh, documentary of Crashin, which was endlessly bootlegged, copied, and, and shown on <laughs> on courses where it shouldn't have been shown on courses because it was giving people, you know, it was, I think it was a bit misleading. And what was it about again? I, I don't know much. Oh, about well, that. this is Crash. This was a it was a it was about second language learning and a British documentary. Uh, and which Krashen was interviewed, or he was filmed giving some of his famous talks with his, right. his witty kind of um, Woody Allen kind of delivery. <laughs> and um, it was interspersed with shots of Suggestopedia and total physical response with the Spanish class in the States and etc. And it became the go-to uh, documentary whenever you wanted to expose your trainees, whether at pre-service or in-service course, to these methodologies, because there it was, and people were actually doing it. So yes. it was actually, very, but it was all based around, it took, it was, it was an uncritical, um, uh, uncritically crashing, in a sense that <laughs> they didn't question this great man's, because he was so compelling, his, uh, his belief that you, you know, you, you know about the, uh, the right, the you know, silent period and comprehensible input and lack of, and lowering the effective filter and those things. But we needed to hear that then because we hadn't thought of the effectivity of language learning at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And also we hadn't taken on board the fact that, yes, maybe learners need to be exposed to language before they're forced to speak it. Um, so, so I started experimenting with those kind of principles. Okay. Uh, just uh, a little bit of trivia here. I found a documentary. It's called A Child's Guide to Language, Teaching That's a Second Language, 1964. Um, also, James Asher, Cheryl yeah. Lepkin, Edward Heath, Nigel Reeves, and Colin Hadley are also part of the documentary. 64. Uh, it counts yes. have been 64. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even even <laughs> Crashing would have been in short pants in 64. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> originally but i think there was one episode that had crashed and it was because it's from 1964 to to oh. up until now they still have it oh, really? um hmm. can i jump in just for a second yeah. leo uh scott you talk about experimenting a lot and i'm just wondering we're listening to your story and if there's a moment it's probably impossible but that moment where you're you know a seemingly emergency situation you're teaching two classes simultaneously um, from up until that point, you're, you know, what you're saying, you're following the mother goose approach, mm -hmm. right? Following along the IH mm -hmm. method. Is that a moment that we can look at and say that, you know, you, you also say you were at the right place at the right time, but I think we also all agree that a path can open itself to us, but we still have to walk down it. So is that a moment where the light bulb went off and there then were, there were this path yeah. opened, but that was the one where you said, okay, I can actually walk down this path now. Yeah, I think there were definitely light bulb moments which didn't necessarily lead to you know a, a complete change of direction but they were they challenged my basic beliefs which do and i remember a lesson for example in uh in alexandria so so this was still after the delta course but where, where i remember or was it maybe it wasn't car i can't remember but anyway i was drilling drilling uh present perfect simple as one does and uh, to, to Egyptians because it's possible they don't have anything equivalent in Arabic so it was, it was an uphill battle because I mean they actually the default setting for them is the past simple so you had it had to be quite ingenious to force them to use the present perfect so I had this situation which was I thought rather clever which was a tourist uh, in Egypt and his guide and the guide would say uh, uh, was suggesting places to go and uh, 
so he said, would, would you like to see the pyramids? And the, and the tourist would say, no, I've seen them already. And they said, well, would you like to go on a felucca on them? No, no, I've done that already, et cetera, et cetera. And I was running out of prompts. So I said, would you like to uh, listen to Um Kulthum? Now, Um Kulthum is this kind of iconic Egyptian singer uh, who, like everybody in Egypt knows, but it's, it's insider knowledge. She's not, she sings in Arabic. She's not known outside of it. And but the students were obviously startled by the fact that I had access to this insider knowledge. And one of them said, did you hear Um Kulthum? And I'm going, this is in the middle of a drill which you're practicing, have you heard? And I have, I've heard already. Present Perfect couldn't have been more available. <laughs> it was in the room. It was all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the student said, did you hear Um Kulthum? Because he immediately leapt from form into meaning. And when the focus was on the meaning, it all went out the window. And I'm thinking, I'm saying, Ahmed, what, what are we practicing here? You know, and she was staring at me in disbelief. Well, no, that's, that's the English lesson. I'm interested in whether you, because it's so, un, so odd that a foreigner should have heard of this iconic singer. Right. Mm. And so he had the means to say, well, have you heard Uncle Sue? And did you like sound it? Um, but he didn't. And I was thinking, well, there you go. You see, it doesn't work because you're right in the middle and it's right there and it couldn't be more available and it's not. So something's going on that we don't understand in the human mind. And then maybe crash is right. Maybe we should just bathe them, you know, in the present perfect and wait six months before it pops up. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi, everyone. My name is Carrie, and I'm from Macau. This is Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. 大家好，我嘅名系刘依慈，我嚟自澳门，嚟家听紧嘅系 Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Um, but he didn't, and I was thinking, well, there you go. You see, it doesn't work because you're right in the middle, and it's right there. It couldn't be more available, and it's not. So something's going on that we don't understand. In the human mind, and then maybe crash is right. Maybe we should just bathe them, you know, in the present perfect, and wait six months before it pops up. Wow. So those are these, yeah, these are these flash, these light bulb moments. And I mean, there there were a number of them which I started to question what was going on. But there wasn't there wasn't a viable alternative except the community communicative approach. But communicative approach was already being, in a sense, traduced, you know, betrayed. Um, mm-hmm. By the forces of evil, <laughs> which were <laughs> which was the grammatical syllabus that had been, you know, crushed down for a few years. But it was kind of. I remember Donald Freeman saying that grammar syllabus is like bamboo. You know, you get bamboo in your garden, you cut it back and you cut it back, and then it springs up again next year. <laughs> <And> this is. <laughs> this is <laughs> 
<laughs> we were just talking before the show about you know v- seemingly vague and ambiguous or interpretable terms in our industry and we were joking that the communicative approach is the only thing teachers agree on is that nobody knows what it really means exactly it's got as many meanings <laughs> and i mean i think you see that's one of the problems i mean uh i, well, I mean i had to i was asked to write a uh a, a chapter for a handbook two or three years ago one of these big, huge, fat handbooks. I don't think anybody ever reads, but uh, I put a, and my. I was um, it was on applied linguistics, I think, and I was asked to do the one on resisting linguistics. No, it wasn't that one. It was um, I, maybe it was the Graham Hall's one, the Routledge Handbook of English Language Teachers. I mean, anyway, I was asked to do the communicative approach, and that really forced me back mm. to look at the whole history of it and where it came from and how far back it went and also how people were already in the 60s talking about communicative activities just right I had no idea um because i just thought it burst upon the world in 1975 with, right. with wilkins and the council of europe and all that but it had a it had quite a and also it was firmly grounded in a sort of political ideological development post-war european philosoph- philosophical uh you know the, new, the the word communication. When you do a kind of um, what's it called, the Google search thing of words. You know, you get oh, a big, ngram, 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 exactly. Yeah. And you put in communicative, and it's like it's very significant how in the fifties, the sixties, it really shoots up uh, because it was everywhere. We're just talking about we've got to communicate. We've got to we can by communicating we can solve all the world's problems. Uh, and so the communicative approach was an idea whose time had come, but nobody really knew what it meant. You're right. And uh, I understood it to mean that you learn a language by using it. That's it. You learn a language by using it. You don't, you, you don't learn a language and then use it. You learn a language by using it. You know? it's, it's funny. Experiential. It goes way back to John Dewey and all the, the whole progressive education movement, experiential learning, experiential too. learning. Yeah. Just to go back to the engram here, I just... Again, I'm a, I'm a nerd when it comes to those things. 1800s, um, the word communicative was actually quite frequent. And then it started going down and it reached the bottom in 1920. And then, as you said, Scott, in the early 40s, that's when it started mm-hmm. kind of going up. And now we are in, what, 2020? And it's up there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I want to go back to our timeline here because eventually, after all these experiences, you move back to, you've moved to Spain. Mm-hmm. to run a very successful Delta program with Neil Forrest, mm-hmm. whom, according to you, has played a very important role in your practical theory of language teaching. You also had lots of freedom to design the course. This is something that you mentioned before you were experimenting. Um, and you wanted to envision something different. You had something in mind. So you, you were having these intense conversations about language that were, according to you, the germ of dogma emerging. And at one point you mentioned that Neil and you together had an insight that a lesson with no problems was not a good lesson because there was no learning. And a lot of this connects to John Hades' Visible Learning for Teachers as well, which is a fantastic book. So can you tell us more about these conversations? Um, What is your understanding of developing a practical theory of language teaching? How did the germ of dogma emerge from those conversations? And and why are lessons with no problems not good lessons? Yeah, well, again, I mean, I, we were, I was incredibly... Is Neil still working, Scott? Sorry to interrupt. He's retired. He's, He's retired. retired. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but no, he was a, uh, a very formative influence. The conversations that we had, um, because we, we were running single-handedly these Delta courses one after the other, 
sometimes two a year. And it was, uh, and as you said, I, I ha we had an enormous amount of freedom actually to do what we wanted to do, less freedom I think now than uh, instructors have on any of these courses for one reason or the other. But so, um, uh, and, and of course it involved uh, a strong practical element of watching these teachers teach in their own schools, um, spending a lot of time trekking around Catalonia late at night, coming back from watching some, somebody <laughs> teaching the present perfect at some uh, barrio school in Girona or whatever. But, uh, but it was incredibly uh, formative because we spent a lot of time, Neil and I, talking about, you know, what, what makes a good teacher. We're having to assess teachers, and that's one of the hardest things in the world. And one, I think I hate, actually. I've never really enjoyed it, but you have to do it. Uh, not just assess them, but then you have to guide them to the, you know, to, 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 to fulfill their potential. And everybody, you know, has that potential. But a lot of people were blocked because they had come from similar background as I had, for example. Some of them had been trained in the same school we were doing the Delta. They'd done the Celta there. So, you know, we could see them. They'd come back and say, well, you haven't changed much. You know, <laughs> what what's happened? You know, you've been away four or five years and you're still using, you're still slavishly following the course book. So, so this was, so yeah, so we were, we spent a lot of time chewing the fat over what, what was going wrong in a sense with the, the lessons we were watching, why there wasn't any communication when communication was everybody was notionally committed to. Everybody said, oh yeah, I'm a signed up communicative. I've got my communicative language teaching <laughs> card. And so we were not much communication. Now, and one of the reasons we hypothesized was because there was too much stuff in the classroom and again it was just like clear some space like my time magazine thing you know just clear some space give them trust the students trust the students and we were very we were very draconian in our approach we'd say no you cannot take in all those books and and <laughs> and photocopies and so on uh, and those quiz and their rods and this then the other you know you cannot you've got to go in and you can do one activity from the course book but then you've got to kind of like and so we, it was cruel in some ways because I mean nobody is can be spontaneous and responsive when they're being observed. I mean we didn't yeah. factor that in. So we're sitting at the back of the room with our you know clipboards. <laughs> there's a lovely there's a story I remember. I, I think it's apocryphal. I think Adrian Underhill told me this, but uh, of Gatenio, you know Gatenio of um, of Suggestopedia fame. Mm. I would sit at the uh, back of the class watching a teacher struggling through their lesson and he had a card which he would hold up and on it was written, stop teaching. <laughs> 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 and that's a bit like, we should, stop, stop teaching grammar, you know, stop talking, give, uh, you know, free up the space. So, and, uh, and I mean, there was resistance clearly, uh, but there was also, we did get the feeling that the message was getting through. And I remember, and people like Adrian Underhill, actually, while I mentioned him, were visiting us in Spain. We started, there was a trickle of people coming through because he worked for International House. And so he was part of that Steve humanistic tradition, et cetera. So we were, the news was, 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 was percolating through that there are other ways of doing things. And I remember, and Adrian has no recollection of this, but he gave a workshop where he wrote a paper once was why, um, why, I don't know, what was the verb used, abandoning or rejecting or whatever, the course book is a good idea. And he wrote this little piece about it. And he said, one of the reasons why, you know, moving away from the course book is a good, good idea is because when you go back to it, you appreciate it more and you use it more 
uh, creatively or whatever. And I remember that made an impression on me. The same time, uh, and I've retrieved this, I mean, I've still got it somewhere, when after reading Way and Ways, I produced a kind of my own manifesto of what I felt was the, uh, the essence of language teaching. And it was in a series of, it was a kind of maxims, if you like, or it was like a manifesto, is that you should do this and you shouldn't do that kind of thing. But I felt it was a, my way of kind of capturing where my thinking was going. And it's so old that it's typewritten. I mean, this is before I even had it. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but that was feeding into the teaching. But the thing about Neil, working with Neil, Neil's more radical in some ways than I was because he, he did really trust. And also he's one of these people who's got the complete, he just, he'll get on, he, he lived up, uh, who lives up the coast from Barcelona, so he'd commute in every day. And he'd tell us about these conversations he had on the train. He would just start talking to people in Spanish or Catalan or English or whatever, and he would just have conversations and sometimes about politics and, you know, uh, ecology. And, and he was like that. He was one of these people who just engaged with people. Uh, and he did it with his students. And, um, uh, and he taught me a lot about trusting the students and how to get things going so that what emerges in the first five minutes of the lesson becomes the lesson kind of thing. It's mm. an important point. Mm. Mike can talk a little bit more about this, but there, I want to understand the resistance because I think it's still, it's still pervasive. I think a lot of teachers are still very resistant to trust the students to trust that language will naturally emerge. And more importantly, this developing this practical theory of language teaching, because Mike is doing his PhD, so he can speak more about that. Mike. Well, no, I, I think it's, for me, it just seems like it's a, uh, a real challenge for a lot of teachers to be vulnerable, right? Like to, to actually stand up in front of the classroom and feel uncomfortable and to use those as, as you've done, right? As, as teachable moments for yourself, right? And, and you can have the repertoire there that you build over time, but it's, it's finding where that meshes with the theory and, and being able to kind of put it into practice. But I think you mentioned something earlier about trusting the students and also recognizing what they bring with them into the classroom. Because I, I think, I think for, for, for me, and this goes back, we mentioned John Dewey earlier, this whole idea of tapping into the psychology, maybe this is why Neil was so successful. He was very, maybe great with reading people in general, and being able to know what makes them tick and to work with it from there and thus creating that lesson from the first, first five minutes. But it goes back with, again, just being comfortable with discomfort mm -hmm. for me. I, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. And I think, uh, again, we were maybe pushing, uh, sometimes we were pushing our trainee teachers a little too far because it was, it, we were pushing them way out of, way outside their comfort zone. But I mean, we were deliberately trying to do that. So, you know, you've got, the, you've been teaching now for three or four years, you, sh you should have the classroom management skills and you should know enough about the English language to be able to respond, you know, in the way that I was learning to, I learned to respond in Egypt, having to do these substitute lessons where I had nothing. I walked in and I think, what the hell am I going to do? Um, you, you know, we, and if you draw on the social, interpersonal side of your skill set, which you should have if you're a teacher, you shouldn't be in the classroom if you don't have social skills or interpersonal skills. 
if you draw on those kinds of things, which allow you to, to survive a dinner party, for example, by being able to talk to people next about any old thing or a long plane trip stuck next to somebody who's obsessed about, you know, whatever, that you can do it because we're human beings and we're, we're good at that. But why don't we, you know, and so it's try, we're trying to tell the teachers, bring these skills into the classroom. They're not uh, that sophisticated, you know, you just have to respond as if you were having a conversation. The, the challenge is, and I think this is still the challenge, and I don't deny that it's a big one, is how you take that emergent language and how you do something with it so that the learners feel that they've actually learned something and they just didn't have a conversation. And that is the challenge. And that's the challenge of the task-based learning as well, is how you, you know, okay, it's one thing to set up tasks and have everybody doing and creating, but, you know, where's the meat you know where's the beef where's the plus one where's whatever you want to where's the you know otherwise people are just like and this is one of the things i felt i remember one of the, the first talk i ever gave at an itf conference was called no pain no gain it was mm. because i was had seen so many classes where which were notionally communicative but they weren't they were just interactive and there's a difference students were interacting like they were watching each other's lips going up and down and they, then they would say something. And they, But there's nothing. There was. I likened it to a, a car which is in neutral. You know? So the engine is on, you can hear it, but it's idling. And this is what I said. So many classes where I said, well, come on, push them a bit, you know, get them to stand up and do the damn activity, for example, rather than mm -hmm. sitting down. Get them to do it again. Film them, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, or do it <laughs> in a shorter time, whatever, anything. I actually saw a wonderful talk uh, in, in Barcelona by a guy who was the editor of the TESOL Quarterly at the time, um, um, who was uh, had extrapolated five principles of the communicative approach, which did... In, in, we're consistent with Meryl Swain's idea of push. You know, it's push, not enough yeah. about input, 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 Mr. Crashen, but it's output too, and you need pushed output. And so this talk that Stephen Gaze, that's right, his name, gave this talk, which made a huge impression on me, and I worked into a lot of my writing before I discovered that it wasn't his idea at all. It was somebody who had written an article for the TESOL Quarterly yeah. uh, called uh, Gadbon, ah, from Canada, yeah. Gad, Gat Bonton and Segalowitz uh, wrote this oh, fabulous article in the Tesla Quarterly in 1985 or something. And that was like, oh my God, yeah. That, and that still is, I still promote their five basic principles of what they call creative automa automatization. Mm. Uh, because I think they, they make sense and they've been validated by a lot of the research into task-based learning, for example, subsequently. I don't know, how did I get onto this? Uh, but it's this thing, yes, of shaping the, how do you take that emergent language and what do you do with it? And that's why we wrote the book in, in 2009, Luke and me, uh, Teaching Unplugged, because, you know, people say, <laughs> still saying, but I don't understand what you do with this language. I mean, it's, it's one mm -hmm. thing to set up communicative activities. There's another thing to, you know, respond to the language that comes up. And so part of the book focuses very much on that. Yeah, how to guide learning, right? That seems to be mm. the real challenge, yeah. Simple question, Scott, complicated answer. With that in mind and the, the, the sign, you know, stop teaching, um, what role, for you, what role does lesson planning play in language learning? Um, well, it plays, I mean, I, it plays an important role. I, mean, I would make a distinction between 
and it's not an original, it's not my distinction, but between preparing a lesson and being prepared for a lesson. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the things, again, that we were trying to inculcate in our trainees was the state of preparedness, that you will go in anticipating what will happen, but not knowing exactly which way it's going to go, but being being on the, you know, your on your tippy toes so that you mm -hmm. can just seize the day kind of thing and go with the flow. And that 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 is that's a lifetime's preparedness, but it's also thinking ahead, thinking, yeah, okay, uh, you know, maybe you still you're working with a course book and that but you'll take the topic of the course book and say, maybe we'll just run with the topic and see if we can get a conversation out of the topic before we go into the course book proper. Uh, so how can I generate that and where, where is it likely to go and why might it fall flat and what would I do in that case? So that, that, that kind of planning, if you like, behavior, I think is very important. But I, I mean, I think planning is a good exercise at, uh, for examined classes and for courses like the CELTA and the DELTA, I mean, learning to plan, but knowing when the plans has to be abandoned is equally important. Mm -hmm. And also providing wiggle room within that plan so that there is you know, so you allow for possibilities of learner input and engagement, which will uh, may well subvert the plan uh, and send it off in a completely different direction. I mean, this is something that's hard. This is hard to sell to people who are on a course, which they mm -hmm. think there are <laughs> measurable outcomes and it's all written in stone what, you know, the Delta lessons should look like. Uh, but I don't, you know, I think that thinking has moved on. Yeah. Absolutely. I think what Delta examiners are looking like, anybody who's examining a, a class, assessing a class for examination purposes, should be also looking at the teacher's responsive, responsiveness, their spontaneity, their ability mm -hmm. to deal with the here and now, their relationship with the, stu right. the students, their courtesy and all these kind of interpersonal factors, not just that they went through the plan uh, with a timing like a Swiss train. <laughs> Irrespective of what was actually happening. In front of them, right? Wasn't it Angie Maldarez, Leo, who said about responsibility? A teacher's responsibility, responsibility is his or her response ability. Ability. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of answered the, the question about what lessons, prob lessons with no problems are not good lessons. And I remember you saying in one of your, I think you were quoting uh, White, that failure to understand leads to learning. So there is this, this tension, that tension is really important in, in language learning. And I think it was also White, again, pulling quotes from, from your talks. I spent the last five weeks doing a lot of research on you, Scott. So the driving force for language change is that input is incomprehensible rather than comprehensible. So I think we have the answer to, to, um, yeah. to those I, yeah. lessons. Those and I would lessons. just add, I mean, this notion of uh, unproblematic teaching comes from uh, was how I was trained, and that's mm. late audio lingualism. Remember, because what you did, everything you did in the classroom, was to avoid students making errors. So you know, you frog marched them through the syllabus, you drilled them, right. you drilled them to the into the ground through fear that they might say something. Of course, then they did. You see, when my students said, "Did you hear Uncle Sue say?" You can't say that. Somebody might hear you, uh, and. And so, and so what I didn't understand at that point was this is a brilliant opportunity. Yeah, this is, 
the learners' errors are opportunities; they're not mistakes. And I think yeah. that was that's a, that completely flipped me that mm -hmm. under, that realization. I mean, it wasn't on that particular moment and that lesson, but it, that was that contributed to this idea that no, if there's no problems, if there's no errors, there's no learning. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. we've got to push the, the learners to the point where they don't understand or they can't produce and then we yeah. we help them out it's that sort of leading up the garden path kind of thing yeah. having a great time doing this activity but in fact it's not good enough you know mm -hmm. wow well i want to one question about your ma before we jump into your writing mindset but you, you said that teacher education has always been your passion and it was actually the subject of your, of your MA dissertation at, at Reading. Mm -hmm. um, why did you decide to focus on teacher education? And why did you decide not to pursue a career in academia and do a PhD and so on and so forth? I'm curious about that. Well, I decided to focus on teacher education uh, because that's what I had been doing prior to the MA, and, and that's what I was going to be doing after. So it was a good, for, for, I mean, for from a pragmatic point of view, it provided me with the research data that I needed to do a dissertation. And I, I did a, my dissertation on reflection, which was mm -hmm. a buzzword at the time. We're talking 1990 or something. Uh, I mean, it's still a buzzword, but um, I, I did something that uh, I'm, proud I did actually because we instituted it in our courses it became a regular thing which was we had the the uh, trainee teachers keep mm. diaries or logs or journals okay. whatever you want to call them of their experience from day one and so we're able to track their kind of innermost oh. as their their in-flight thinking as so and we gave them kind of rubrics to follow etc and this was public then you were going to read them but I used this uh, one set of diaries as the basis as the data for my dissertation in order to identify what reflective discourse looks like, and you know and whether, and also to see if there was a correlation with those those trainees who seem to be expressing uh, deeper reflection, if you like, about their lessons, but also those who were better mm. teachers. You know, I mean, and we are only talking about 12, 12 teachers, so it's impossible to you know, such a small number to to co make a co firm correlation. But there did seem to be something there uh, and i've always been interested in the reflective you know cycle uh and the idea that 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 because you see it goes back to this thing i was saying about the four-week course we started teaching and then we reflected on it and nobody talked about reflection in those days i mean mm. the, the word hadn't been coined not within teacher teacher education uh it was feedback you know it was called feedback right. in those days but then actually it was reflection uh, and if it was handled well by a, a sensitive tutor, then it could be incredibly uh, powerful learning experience. And I remember actually running a four-week course, a CELTA course in Auckland, of all places, where we decided to abandon the input, not entirely, but just have teaching practice and reflection on the teaching practice. Oh, wow. And that was, that was the course. And it was fantastic. So we, we did coaching before the teaching practice. So we'd walk them through. Then they'd do the teaching practice. And then we'd sit down and we'd just, and that fed into the next morning session kind of thing. Wow. So it was an amazingly, it was a re, pure realization of that reflective cycle. So I've always been interested in that. Uh, and then, of course, when I went, you know, it just so happened that the place where I ended up teaching in a university was the New School in New York, which was founded by John Dewey, or Dewey as they call him there. Really? Uh, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, you didn't know that. No, uh, I didn't so know there that. you are. I missed so that now, on my so own. I'm telling you something you didn't know. So John Dewey Flipped trod those grass. fabled halls yeah. where I was teaching. I mean, various other legendary people taught there too, including Allen Ginsberg and John Cage. But John Dewey, Dewey started wow. it all off. So he wrote about experiential learning and reflectivity before, long before it got into second language teacher education. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I've always been. Why didn't I go into academia? Because, uh, well, because I started writing books for teachers uh. Uh, and there seemed to be a demand for that. There seemed to be uh, a need for books which were written for practitioners, not for researchers or other academics. And so that was that I got sort of stuck on that route and, and, and it was and it, it lasted a good 10 years or more of a book after every year a book. Yes, you have, uh, you've written, I would say almost 20 here, according to my calculations, not to mention articles on teaching, teaching of language systems, mainly grammar. I'm not going to ask you why grammar, because that question has already been asked. Um, but one of the first books you've written was about language, which mm -hmm. is to me a classic published in 1997. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear you speak more accurately about the writing process of that book. And well, that, what does the writing process look like for you, Scott? Like, what do your writing sessions tend to look like? If we kind of like look back over the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, because I'm sure it's changed. Like, how do you start writing a book? When you sit down, is it an empty page? Is it bits and pieces that you've noted through the week or observations that you then flesh out? What is actually in front of you when you start writing? It's what's behind you. It's your experience of teacher training. Uh, if you've been talking about teaching and teacher training, I did something like 16 deltas with Neil. So the actual talking and, and the, the sessions themselves during the course, the preparation of worksheets, et cetera. And then the discussions with Neil, for example, is that that, that is that huge corpus if you like of right. of discourse about edu teacher education that then you 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 kind of you know you shape into a, a a chapter of a book but i mean i mean about language was a case in point because about language was really uh a set of worksheets that i produced for the language analysis thread of the delta course right. uh and it was ruth gans who was the editor of that series at times time said to me, why don't you put this into a book? And which is exactly the experience I'm talking to actually one of the other chapters of a handbook I wrote recently was interviewing other methodology writers like Penny Er, Jeremy Harmer, Jim Scrivener, uh, about their the process of and how they got into publishing. They all said exactly the same thing. I started I was teacher training and a publisher wandered in one day and said, Oh, what would you like to write a book for us? And then so those initial worksheets and things were sort of then turned into uh, books by clever editors. Um, so uh, there's no such thing as a blank page because it's all there. <laughs> uh, no writer's block then. Well, no, not 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 really. I'm a, uh, I'm, uh, and it's interesting revisiting these books because at least three of them uh, have just been rewritten, second right. editions, and the third that I'm working on at the moment a book uh, that I wrote with Herbert Puchter on creative grammar activities, which is 
you know, they all come around again. And it's mm. interesting looking at them in the light of time and thinking, yeah, well, actually, I'm glad they've asked me to rewrite this because it wasn't perfect the first time around. No, right. no book is, but it's kind of gratifying to be able to correct some of your excess or bring it up to date, basically. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't get, no, it's not, uh, I, I write erratically, let's say, and I write, uh, there's no routine to it. It's not like okay. I'm going to do 10,000 words before breakfast. I'm not Georges Simenon. Uh, I, you know, I don't do it like that. I just kind of, uh, it goes on to, but, you know, uh, and it's quite quick, I have to say. Um, uh, I'm lucky that I don't, well, I mean, I'm not lucky in the sense that I don't have a regular teaching timetable. I don't have any timetable at the moment. So I have an unlimited time to write and also to edit other people's books. Uh, and the process, yeah, it is interesting seeing how different it is to different writers and, uh, and working with them. But I can't really define my approach any more than that. It's kind of sporadic, but it, it is this regurgitating in some of these conversations that I've had before onto the page. Was there a book that you started, but you didn't finish? No, but there were books I had ideas for, which I couldn't sell uh, to anybody. Teaching Unplugged was one of them, according to Luke. In the beginning, nobody wanted to publish that book. Of course not. They ran a mile. (laughs) I mean, uh, it was was Delta Publishing who were infinitely wise in deciding to take it on because they didn't have a course book list. So it didn't threaten anything. Right. But uh, other people say, you must be mad. You know, people like Oxford or Cambridge, we're not going to publish a book which is anti-course books. You must be mad. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Developing as a teacher isn't easy. It's even more challenging doing it solo. If you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn, then the Learn Your English teaching membership can help. The Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, and application to your individual teaching context. The membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Hey guys, I'm Sophia Shanahan from Venezuela, living in Canada, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Um, and uh, I had another idea for a book, a course book, actually, because I did write course books. You know? Yes, I know that. Yeah. Oh, yes. You wrote one. You wrote one. Pearson, I guess. Was oh, it? no, I wrote more than one. Oh, you, oh, you wrote more than one. Oh, oh, I wrote many <laughs> more than one. And I wrote bits of other people's course books. Actually. That's, That's right. how I started I know, yeah. writing workbooks and teacher's guides okay. and things like that. But I had, I had a hand at course books. And people say, oh, you're such a hypocrite. You wrote course books and then you went teach for... No, that was actually, before, right? Yeah, you learn a lot what's wrong with course books by writing. I mean, I learned, you know, it's like... Uh, it's like people who people <laughs> criticize somebody who's a non-smoker. But you said, but you used to smoke once. Well, yeah, that's why I'm a non-smoker now. Right. Hello. I mean, you know, it doesn't disqualify me from being a non-smoker just because I smoked once. So it doesn't disqualify me from being a critic of course books just because I wrote a few. Um, 
I learned a lot about, but I did have this idea of writing a course book, which is based on, which is rehabilitated grammar translation. Oh. Uh, so it's to bring grammar translation back, but to dust it off and turn it into communicative approach to so bring the two things together. I still think that's a great idea, but nobody would touch it. You never know. Hmm. And not because they didn't like grammar translation, but because this market would be limited because you'd have to have one book for Spain, one book for Portugal, one book right. for, you know, whatever. Okay. Well, let's get into dogma now because uh, we've already segued very nicely there. So I think we should talk about Leo Van Leer, um, mm, author please. of The Ecology and Semiotics of Language Learning, Interaction in the Language Curriculum. And you've mentioned this many times, Scott, that he was a very, along with with Neil, very important influence in your development. And you kind of quote him as a spirit guide for you. You mentioned that his uh, books are heavily underlined and annotated, and you even know whole extracts by heart. Yes, it's right there. <laughs> And one of the things I've noticed, and you've mentioned this, is, and Mike and I have only recently, maybe in the last two years, have been deep, kind of like emerging, not emerging, but a lot of his work has emerged naturally for us. And for, according to you, he connected some of those important dots and, and moved TESO beyond the confines of the classroom towards this universe and, and this idea of ecolinguistics, emergence, affordance, social cultural learning theory, scaffolding, just to name a few. One of the first questions we have is with regards to ecolinguistics, emergences, emergence affordances, social cultural learning theory, scaffolding. Can you tell us more about how your past experiences and the work of Van Leer influenced the entire dogma ELT movement, teaching unplugged, I should say? Uh, well, how long have you got? I mean, let, let me just say, I, I read uh, a few books that make such an impression that uh, that you remember exactly when you first started reading and where you were. And I was in the airport of Palma de Mallorca coming back from observing a teacher or whatever. Mm. And I was reading, thumbing, I'd had the, got the book and I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. And I remember that vividly. And I subsequently met Leo uh, on a couple of occasions, once in Brazil, in fact, and the second time in Northern Cyprus. And we spent some considerable time talking and but one of the things about him comes through his book is his kind of his as you say it's kind of almost like a renaissance capacity to bring in lots of feeder disciplines that you didn't think had anything to do with english language teaching and he was also one of the first people who started to kind of um challenge the reigning paradigm which is still with us which is that all the language learning happens in the head and only in the head you know it's the, the cognitive uh the brain is a computer kind of uh um, metaphor, which is still with us very much, uh, but has been shaken to its foundations by people like Leo Van Leer, by Diane Larson Freeman, by, and, mm -hmm. and in his own time by Earl Stevick too. Um, and so what, and so what Van Leer brought into the equation was very much this ec, 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 the ecolinguistics, but also just interaction the role of interaction in learning and in the mm -hmm. classroom and of course this hails back to Vygotsky and social cultural theory which was also a new kid on the block I mean it hadn't been it's been around since the 1930s but it had never permeated the west because it was tainted with with Marxist uh, connotations and right. uh, I remember a woman on my teacher, teacher training on a Delta course saying haven't you heard of Vygotsky everything you're doing is very Vygotsky -esque. And, he said, I never, I no. and so that got me really interested and huh. so Van Leer of course takes 
that on board and he takes echolinguistics on board and he takes dynamic learning theory on board and he kind of forges this thing but it's grounded in his basic now his first book even before interaction language curriculum was all about discourse classroom teaching discourse etc and so mm. it's this notion that yes it's the interactions that's where learning takes place is the interaction between the teacher and the learner but also between the learners themselves and that's all it needs it doesn't need to be mediated by course books or you know cd-roms or uh right. you know online games or whatever it uh, it's just it's the interaction it's in the interaction and so his book just nailed that for me and this is what in fact, yeah, this is what we're trying to do on our courses is to focus on this interaction and the richness and, and the quality of the interaction uh and so is it it was an easy progression right to dogma i mean he planted the seeds um it wasn't the only one but i mean definitely i mean when did this book come out 1996 yeah yeah it was so the notion and then subsequently in the 2004 book on eco ecology eco linguistics and semiotics which is, which is a harder book uh yes but, <laughs> yes indeed very good hard one. to read uh yeah, yeah it's, 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 he's got so much going on in his head i think you know he had trouble he never was faced by a blank page because he had it was, it was the opposite it was just too much to go onto the page so didn't know how to kind of edit himself but um but it was absolutely <laughs> fascinating and the idea that um uh that language learning could emerge out of activity i mean and i saw well i think his talk i saw him given in brazil was about activity-based learning which was just another word for task-based learning really and so again Dewey-esque experiential mm -hmm. learning, but le learning can, with the right kind of scaffolding and the right degree of attention and engagement, can emerge, keyword, out of activity uh, with language. And mm -hmm. so that's the job of the teacher is to create, and this was the communicative approach after all, you know, like right. I said, you learn a language by using it. And this is what Dick Allright was saying in 1976. And well, they were all saying, uh, and nobody followed through, except right. the kind of the t it went off down the task-based avenue, or content-based learning, and all, all the other kind of permutations of more semantic syllabus, etc. So, right. um, so this came at exactly the right time. I read all these, you know, these books that really fell into my lap and changed my thinking radically, or confirmed my thinking, or made me articulate it. Um, and so when uh when that just happened i was in a cinema in barcelona watching a film an oddball film by a scandinavian film and they had this little flyer that they handed out and they said this is a film about the dogma 1995 film movement and these are the oh. 10 prince vows of the dogma uh if to, to make a dogma film you had to uh you you had to obey these ten vows, and I looked at this and I thought, well, this is this is this is fun. I could I could write a little article about this, <laughs> and uh, say so this is what we're trying to do in in English language teaching. We need to abandon uh, as you know, or we need to rescue language because this is what the dogma film movement they kept saying this is we're trying to rescue filmmaking. Right. We're trying to recreate the joy of filmmaking that we had when we made our first films. And so I said, yeah, we need to rescue English language teaching. We yeah. need to find the joy of English language teaching again and not turn it into this chore. Yeah. And so I wrote that little one page, two page article for the IETEFL issues in 2005. I was 
it's interesting because I was reading um, recently. 2000, sorry, 2000. Yeah, go 2000. on. No, I was just reading because, I mean, there are a lot of similarities. When you look at Van Leer's AAA curriculum and you, you read Teaching Unplugged, the two share strikingly similar teaching philosophies and, and practices. And as you said, you've admitted that Van Leer was an important influence. And again, this concept of instructional conversation and all that. But I would like us to focus on the autonomy the authenticity and awareness, because I wanted to know if the autonomy relates to the conversation driven, because there's a quote by, by Van Leer, and I have the page here, page 193. He says, language education is enhanced by things such as engagement, intrinsic motivation, self-determination, and that these conditions are promoted by certain kinds of social interaction. And when I think about teaching unplugged, you said conversation in the real world at least is not so much transactional as interactional. That is when we chat with a friend, it's not normally the exchange of information that is the main purpose. So would you say that the autonomy relates to the conversation driven in that way? Well, I think I have a talk called Seven Things Beginning with A, and because it seems to me you could... You also you have can. one with R as well. Yes, yes. Well, that was when I, after I wrote the A to Z of ELT, I needed a catchy title for talks. And, and one of the things about writing the A to Z of ELT is you are writing it in alphabetical order and you start to see connections that wouldn't normally be there because you're doing all the A's together and all the R's together. But there's some very rich A words, including uh, autonomy and appropriation, of course, the Vygotskian idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, also uh, authenticity um, and agency. And actually, I think agency is the kind of one I'm I, I more committed to rather than autonomy, but it's giving the learners agency, giving them some say in the direction of the lesson. There was a very good article that Rod Ellis wrote years ago, which has disappeared from Trace. It's never been reprinted, but we used to use it in our Delta course. And it was all about discourse manage ownership. Mm. Uh, in the language lesson. And it's this session, yes, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to give ownership to, and some of the best lessons I'd observed when the teacher um, didn't abdicate their responsibility, mm. but devolved responsibility onto the learners, but was always there supporting, scaffolding, being the teacher, but allowing the learners to run with the uh, content of the lesson, if right. you like. And so this is this seems to be really exciting. And this was a, is a very Van Leary uh, idea. Um, I mean, I think, you know, autonomy is a, the ultimate goal, of course, of any educational process is that the learners sh shouldn't be relying on the teacher to be there holding them up and being providing that kind of support. But it's a, um, it's a goal. I don't, I'm not sure how much autonomy you can actually have in the process of, of learning. I need to go back and, and look at, at Van Leer again, what he says, uh, about that, uh, and also authenticity, of course, authenticity not of the materials necessarily, but authenticity of the of the of the discourse. You know that it is grounded in the concerns right. of the people in the room. So that connects to the materials, like because Van Leer says, and again, I think it's page ninety-five. The raw material for awareness raising is to be found all around the student mm -hmm. in the real world, rather than between the covers of a textbook. And that when I when I read that. I automatically link that to um, materials light with with um, well exactly and, and if you remember our mission statement if you like when we'd started the discussion group the Yahoo discussion group post that article I wrote in, right in uh, ITFL issues 
when people like Luke got in touch with me and we started talking and somebody said, why don't we have a, you know, these, these things called discussion groups. We could, so we did. And our, the mission statement, if you like, say we're committed to, uh, a, I can't remember, something like a teaching of bare essentials, mm-hmm. using the raw material of the classroom interaction to create language learning affordances, something like mm-hmm. that. So it was very, very, yeah, it was grounded in that rhetoric, which comes straight from Van Leer. Right. And I don't think, I, I wonder, I do wonder if he ever heard about, you know, I didn't, because, I mean, people, this was the problem in those days. I mean, the, the Atlantic schism, I mean, there was like, people doing stuff on, in the States and Canada on the one hand, and people doing stuff in Europe and Britain on the other, and never the twain really met. And I think that was because it was, it was practitioners. It wasn't at the level of academics or research necessarily. So when I did meet um, and had a chance to talk to Van Lee at length. I'm not even sure that I probably even mentioned Dogma because I was a little bit ashamed of it because it wasn't, it hadn't been validated by the academic community. Um, and it still hasn't. I was going to say that. Has it been? Or no, it hasn't. Oh, well, it, ha- it, it, it comes up, pops up now. People who write about task-based learning are uh, mentioning it in passing because it's, it's a kind of <laughs> right. manifestation of materials like task-based learning. And interestingly enough, I wonder if I'm allowed to say this. Well, I better not, but two people who are, at, are very much at the cutting edge of, of theor- theorizing and researching task-based learning are producing a book shortly. And the last chapter of which they're looking at kind of variations of task-based learning. And I'm being interviewed next week by one of the co-authors about mm. dogma exactly and how it's how it and in fact I was invited to a conference in about 10 years ago in New Zealand mm. it's the bi- biannual task-based learning conference mm-hmm. and all the heavies of task-based learning are there including Rod Ellis of course and I was asked to give a plenary and you know and I said so why are you asking me and this is unresearched it's un-, and they you know, said no dogma you know talk about teaching unplugged and I said I think they thought because I was in New Zealand I was just down the road and it would save on costs they didn't realize they lived in Spain and they had to fly <laughs> halfway around the world <laughs> maybe this is a good time to jump in with this question Leo because Scott well, when Leo interviewed Luke um at near the end of last year Luke um, was reminiscing and talking about that that famous session that the two of you gave, and he was talking about um, his feelings before kind of going out to do the session. He was, I think I'm correct in saying he was a bit nervous that you didn't really know how it was going to go. I was wondering if you could talk us through the moments before you went out there and then the reaction to that session. Well, there were two sessions, uh, or at least two, where we kind of, one was at IFTF, I remember we were driving down to Brighton and he kept saying, shouldn't we, you know, and, how, and I said, nah, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure if that was the Manic, Manic Street teachers session. We had, uh, we also had Graham Hall on once. There was four of us, Luke, me, Graham Hall, and the guy from Poland, who was also one of the early people on the discussion. And I was it's so male dominated when you think back to it, but um Somebody called us the Manic Street Teachers after the name of the... Nice. <laughs> uh, and that was a kind of free-for-all with people like Alan Maley being quite critical in the audience and Lenny Dam, uh, who, you know, the Danish, um, she's highly into learner autonomy and she felt we were being irresponsible because we were saying, ah, planning, schmanning, you know. And um, we weren't really, but we were being... Uh, we were being provocative but no the best occasion was the launch of teaching unplugged which is also at an itf conference i know that was the session that um luke was referencing but we we were uh we had a plan this is comes back to this thing about being 
of planning and preparedness. We was, but it was the end of a day. It was the launch. It was a, the book had just come out, uh, and we were surprised to see how many people were in the room. It was actually packed. Right. Uh, and I said to Luke, listen, we'll just start off. You know how normally a talk, you do the talk, and then you have question and answer. I said, we're going to start with a question and answer because people, people are here for a reason. They have questions. So let's start with the questions. So I said, <laughs> I said that. We're going to start with the questions. And Mario Rinvalucri was in the audience. He shot up and he had a question. I can't remember what it was, but he, and then it was like we never got to the talk. We spent an wow. hour dealing with the questions. It was, and a woman came up to me afterwards to sign the book. And she said, I was just thinking about you, the session you just did. It's kind of quite dogma-esque, isn't it? And I said, yes, <laughs> you got it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Got a loop really? input. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Do, do you still view it as? I, I maybe it wasn't then. I mean, was it contra? Is controversial the word? Is it? Was it just disruptive? Is it still disruptive. that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you should ask. I mean, there's a whole new sort of resurgence of interest in dogma. I think there's a generation. I mean, you think about it, it's twenty years old, and people taught yeah. many. Most teachers uh, started teaching long and they had some kind of brush with it during their delta or delta and often people who did a delta that was part of they did it as their experimental practice and you know, i get a lot of feedback from people come up to me at conference and say oh yeah i did my uh, my experimental practice lesson as dogma lesson and it was it was really it was real you know seat of your pants but it was really exciting and that and it, it, it was fine and it was very very positive about that uh, such that but because of this kind of generational thing and also i think i suspect there's a sort of, it's like an, it's sort of, it needs to be discovered again because we are yes. more inundated in materials and technology than ever. And I think the move, the, you know, this having this being precipitated into online teaching or remote teaching when nobody was ready for it, well, not nobody, but a lot of us weren't ready for it, really forced people to re start rethinking about what is what's going on here, what is teaching, yeah. and maybe dogma offers something because it's, you know, and so I've been doing masses of talks and courses and things that recently in the last year on dot. Right? It doesn't. I can't push it away. I mean, I did a. I did a. I started off in Moscow about two years ago. I was asked to do a weekend workshop, and and they said dogma, dogma, and I said, oh god, really? You really want that? And uh, I did it, and it, I, you know, it was intensive and very powerful, demanding. Uh, experienced teachers who knew had been doing more of it than I had ever done. Really, I mean, mm -hmm. these are people who they really believed it. It was ideological, and um, it was an incredible experience. It was so intense, completely drained. But then, when we did it again, I did it again in Ukraine, something similar, and it was again, it was incredibly. Uh, and so, I thought, there's a real felt need for this. So, um, so it's growing. It's, it's kind of mm -hmm. yeah. It's, it's, it's growing sort of again. Got a new lease of life. Absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 and I've noticed that with um, now, especially because teachers are not working for schools anymore. A mm. lot of teachers are teaching online. They're doing one to one, and they find that when you're teaching from a textbook and you're teaching one to one, it doesn't really work. And a mm. lot of teachers have connected with us and have said, "Oh, can you guys?" Tell us more about dogmen. Very much like you, Scott. I've been teaching without textbooks for the last maybe ten years of my life, and I would never go back to that. But there is something that you said, and I think this is how we kind of wrap up the dogmen, and then we kind of like reach the end of our our interview here. 
But then Lear mentions something about, which to me is very philosophical. It's almost like he's, he's drinking in the fountains of stoicism here, but he talks about this, this essential interconnectedness of, of, of autonomy, of authenticity and awareness. And you and Mettings profess an attitude shift, a state of mind, a different way of thinking and being a teacher. Is dogma or teaching unplugged more like a mindset then, in your opinion? Well, it's, I mean, I, I, I've always argued there's not a method. I mean, and this is you know, really being hypocritical because in my latest book, 30 English Teaching Methods, I have a <laughs> chapter on dogma. Scott <laughs> Thornby says it's not a method, yet he puts it in his method book. Well, that's because, <laughs> and that was because if I didn't put it in there, people would say, you know, why? Why not? That's the only reason we bought the book. Um, we'll make that quote the promo for the whole show. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we used to say we trotted out this thing. It's not a method; it's a mindset, and and I think we believe that it is a mind. I mean, it goes back to that quote. I think you sort of referenced it. There. Claire Cramp said talking about dialogic pedagogy, mm-hmm. sort of post Paulo Freire kind of how she said a dialogic pedagogy is another way of being a teacher. Um, and I thought we think dogma is another way of being a teacher. It's actually it's the it's it's uh, it's the way uh, of being a teacher that most teachers actually become, you know, with given enough experience. I mean, and and the trajectory of teachers' professional lives, not just in language teaching, but across the board, shows that. As teachers become more experienced, they become more focused on the learners. They allow more agency to the learners. They become less me, me, me kind of thing. And it's just mm-hmm. it's something that so 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 many teachers come and say, "Oh, dogma! I've been doing that for years." And yes, of course you have because you're an experienced teacher and you're a reflective practitioner. And that's of course that's the direction. So it's not a, another way of being a teacher so much as um, of mm. becoming a, the teacher that you really always wanted to be or needed to be. Uh, and so it, 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 it is, it, it is a mindset, but it's not a mindset sort of implies, oh, it's like an overnight sort of, right. you know, Paul on the way to Damascus kind of insight. It's, it's not, it's really a growing awareness for most teachers that there is another way of being a teacher and you yes. do not to slave, need to slavishly follow through, uh, you know, follow a course book or a grammatical syllabus actually, which is mm. the most p- pernicious of all sins. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, that's the quote. That's the quote. <laughs> we'll use that one. Scott, just for us to wrap up here, um, can you tell us more about the Hands Up project in this latest one, mm. the Mosaic Foundation? Mm. Yeah, we're interested in that. Uh, well, I mean, uh, but, uh, where can I begin again? I think part of my debt, if you like, to uh, the place where I was kind of formed as a teacher, which was... Egypt and the Arab world generally, uh, and I've I've have revisited on many occasions, professionally and um, uh, as just as a, as a visitor, a returnee. Um, it just so happened that this project that Nick Bilbris set up uh, struck a chord and seemed to be. Uh, Nick had been, uh, if, if I remember, one of the members of the discussion group, the Yahoo discussion group of Dogma. I'm sure he'd been vocal in supporting and and I'd edited books of his for Cambridge, uh, and we obviously had, you know, we saw eye to eye. So when he started this this project, it just said, yeah, this is 
this is fantastic. I want to be involved in this. Um, and and am and, and and it goes on. And it's it's doing wonderful things, and it's um it's true to the spirit of dogma in many ways because it's all about learner generated language through drama basically and minimal materials. So it's uh, and it, you know learning through experience and doing and so on. And then more recently, this other another UK, UK charity which is Mosaic, which is committed to to getting uh, refugees in the same part of the world up and running into tertiary education they asked yes. this was a very interesting thing because i mean they asked me to become a consultant because they wanted to, they wanted to promote a dogma approach in the classes of these refugees in jordan etc and they wanted to train teachers who are themselves untrained in refugees how to train and so on and so on and so on so this so why dogma? They, well, they, it's a good fit with the circumstances, the situation, because A, it's a counterbalance to the kind of educational tradition that they come from, which is like teacher-driven transmission, grammar-focused, etc. So they so and these are people who are not necessarily English language teachers specialists, but they said, this is a good fit. Would you be prepared to come on board and train our teachers? And so that's what I'm doing at the moment. And it's extraordinarily interesting because we, as I said at the beginning, it's going back to the four-week course and says it's teaching them some techniques and activities to do, not talking about dogma, right. not talking about Van Leer, not talking about Dewey, not talking about any of these people. No, just some activities. Try them out if you like them. They, they like them. They, and they, this is online. We never anticipated it was going to have to be online. We're doing all this teacher training online of dogma techniques. And then they're coming back and saying, oh, my students love this. It's fantastic. And, the, you know, attendance has gone up and blah, blah, blah. And then I say, okay, so what do you think these activities have in common? And that's when we tease out mm -hmm. these basic principles. But it comes out of their having done them right. and liked them and, the and seen how the students liked them. Uh, so it's a, it, it, it's an absolutely amazing. I can't believe I'm so lucky that I'm here. I am practically 110, and I'm still learning things about teaching and teacher training. Uh, it's it's interesting because I think just it, I think all of this connects to what you're saying, and I think the pandemic really accelerated the way we we perceive education. I think the current system is definitely rooted in conformity. It's it's this one size fits all. It's reactionary. It's still very much oriented towards past values and, and, and past technologies. And it's and it's one of the things that I, I was thinking as as I was preparing for this interview. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And and I share these thoughts with Mike and Andrew sometimes when we when we talk is it really forces us when I think about grammar teaching, when I think about structural syllabus, grammar McNuggets, it really forces us to learn the same things in the same way, at the same place, at the mm -hmm. same pace. And it just doesn't really work. Not to mention the fact, to connect to Van Leer's, Scott, that mm -hmm. this system depends on extrinsic rewards. Students are caring too much about grades and not enough about the one thing that really matters, which is learning. And there is mm -hmm. one quote by uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Tyson, I always forget his name, Neil Tyson, the physician of whatever uh -huh. he does. He said, when students cheat on exams, it's because our school system values grades more than the students value learning. And I think what you said, this resurgence of dogma, especially with the younger generations, has a lot to do with this. The educational system has failed them. They are not happy with the way they are teaching. They want to do something different mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely Oof. one last wow. question we have the last question here this is from a, a this is from a, a um 
um, an idea that I had from uh, my interview with Luke, and Luke was uh, a little taken aback by my question, but I'm going to ask the same question to Scott. Maybe he will have a different uh, a different answer. But Scott, the the question is is very um, is very simple. It's a question that I like to ask um, a lot of people, and I think this interview is going to be here for a very long time. So, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything written on it, metaphorically speaking, of course, getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? It could be a few words or it could be a paragraph, but what would that billboard say? Well, let me quote something I said just the other day to these teachers in, uh, in Jordan and Lebanon. Because I was doing a session where we were talking about exactly that, trying to extrapolate these basic principles. And they were saying, yes, it's not about uh, teaching the grammar, is it? It's about, and I said, yeah, I said, basically, let me see if I can get this right. Um, this, this, this way of teaching is where the student is not the object of the verb to teach, but is the subject of the verb to learn. You know, so it's turning it around and giving the, the learner agency and making learning the job, not just teaching and recognizing the difference. So uh, that I thought, that's the sound bite that, you know, I'd like, um, it needs to be tidied up a bit, but uh, that could be. We uh, can do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Wow. That was fantastic. Yes. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much for your time. We um, we really appreciate you, you know, sitting down with us and going down your whole life memory yeah. lane. It's quite a journey. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I learned a lot. Like I was going through this, for this research mm -hmm. and I was like, oh man, I didn't know any of these things about him. I think you were even surprised. Of course, I missed the textbook detail, but that's not everywhere. I think he doesn't promote that. I keep that one quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Uh, it's been, yeah, it's always good to talk and um, uh, it's been great. You asked the right questions. You did the research, which I, you know, is not always the case. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Leo. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.